Let's talk about memories of murder. So coming into this film, I actually thought it was going to be a very different film than what it was. I was thinking this was going to be a sort of memento-like film, and perhaps that's just from the name alone. I know my best friend Andrew absolutely loves this film. It's his favorite Bong Joon-ho film, and up to this point, the only Bong Joon-ho film I had seen was Parasite and Mother. Parasite was the first film of his I had seen. I had seen it on Letterboxd for months, and everyone's like, this is the greatest film of all time. And I was pretty skeptical whenever someone says this is the greatest film of all time, because often it never is, and we either love films because no one else loves them, or hate them because everyone loves them, especially in the film community. For some reason, it's, I would say, more so than other communities, especially in the Letterboxd community, which is a specific type of film community, which I suppose is against the norm or sees themselves as sort of cinephiles of a sort, I guess. I'm not really sure if I would put myself in the same box as them, but I typically, when I see something on that, like, letterbox, I'm pretty skeptical. It was immediately ranked the highest film of all time on letterbox, which is a big deal with hundreds of thousands and a lot of big-name uh, directors and writers and filmmakers on letterbox. I was pretty skeptical of it, but overall, whenever I see a good review on letterbox, I typically trust it. If letterbox has a good review for a film, I trust that a lot more than I would say a Rotten Tomatoes or any specific critic or anything like that or the gross box office, whatever. But I'm also very skeptical of every single type of critic, whether that critic be the community of filmmakers or the community of people who watch films or whatever. I'm always skeptical and I never really want to build an opinion until I've seen it myself. But I had been seeing about Parasite for a long time. And so I go see this film and it's pretty good. Was it the best film that came out that year? I don't think so. Was it the best film ever made? I don't think so. And what my friend Andrew told me, it's not even Bong Joon-ho's best film. Now this I couldn't speak to because at the time that's the only film of his I saw. So uh, about a year later, I went and watched Mother, which was a pretty good experience. I think it's a pretty enjoyable film. And was it better than Parasite? I think it was about the same. I guess it's a little bit different. I guess I had seen Snowpiercer before then, which Snowpiercer, which is a really great idea, fails as a film. I think part of it is because it's in English and perhaps there's a bit lost in translation that just doesn't really work. Of course, Chris Evans gives a great performance, and this is before Chris Evans becomes the one and only Captain America. This is when Chris Evans is still just Chris Evans the actor. And the performance is good, and all of the performances, I would say, are good. It's just, as a whole, the film's just okay. There's just really not a whole lot to make of the film. I think it has a lot of great potential, but because of, I guess, uh, the lost in translation aspects of it, and also due to the fact that the ending's kind of less than great and a little underwhelming. It just becomes an okay film. So P Parasite is definitely better, and so is Mother than uh, Snowpiercer. I think Snowpiercer, as far as I can tell, is his weakest film. I know there's a series, which I haven't seen yet. Maybe I'll watch one day. But coming into this, I had some pretty high expectations. I liked all of Bong Joon-ho's work. I think even his worst film that I'd seen of his, which is Snowpiercer, it's still an enjoyable film, and clearly a well-made film, and clearly Bong Joon-ho has a very 
good grasp on filmmaking, as it seems to me every Korean filmmaker I've seen has. Uh, there's just something in the water there, I suppose, much like uh, in Japanese film, just pretty much all, all of their films are absolutely incredible, where, you know, here in America it's kind of hit or miss, and I would say most of the world it's very hit or miss, but in Korea and Japan they just seem to be hitting on, on all cylinders, both at the moment and for the past 10 to 20 years. Well, even, you know, 56 years, I mean, go back to Kurosawa or Ozu or some of the great uh, Japanese filmmakers after World War II, or even before World War II. And uh, I expected a lot from this film, and it's not good to have expectations going into film, and it's certainly not good to have high expectations going into a film. It is a very dangerous way to quickly be disappointed. One of the reasons that I never have expectations going into a film is because there's a very good chance if you have any expectations of all, you will only be disappointed. I'm very anti-expectations, especially when it comes to films. And I must admit right off the bat that I was a bit disappointed by this film. Now, it's a very good film and a very interesting film. But I think part of my disappointment is I thought it'd be a very different type of film. At the beginning of the film, you, say, you, know, you see that it's 1986. And so I assumed it's going to be jumping you know, uh, through time and these different people, something like uh, perhaps the usual suspects or true detective or uh, even a sort of prisoner vibes at one point. But it's actually much more of your traditional noir than I thought it would be. And it's a really intriguing story. And so when we start the film, we see these two uh, Korean detectives sitting on a tractor driving to what ends up being a, a site where a woman, or I think it's just one woman, is tucked away into like this gutter. And at that immediate moment, you get the exact characterization of who these people are, because the first guy who, I'm not going to remember any of these characters' names, is kind of this crummy guy and not our protagonist, but when he passes the kid, he kind of pushes him aside and says, get out of here. And when the other detective, uh, kind of more a pushy, uh, pushy face? I don't know, just kind of like a soft cheeks, I guess, would be the best way to describe him, chubby cheeks. He kind of rubs the kid's head and, and um, you know, is much kinder to the kid, but still tries to get him to go away, but doesn't really do a whole lot about it. And they look under the sewer and they see a dead woman. And this is, um, I think this is something interesting about this film in particular, is it doesn't really have a whole lot of interest in shock value or gore for the sake of gore, although there are some kind of gross things, it all feels very, and in, I would say in a lot of Bong Joon-ho's work, there's something, there's a certain tone that's almost mellow about it, very calm, I guess you could almost describe it as. And so they end up going back to uh, the station and they do some detective work and they find their first suspect while uh, our protagonist is sleeping, what I assume is a prostitute. It's not entirely clear what her job is. I, I think it's a prostitute, but again, I'm not entirely sure. And she says how this uh, this one kid who seems to have some sort of mental deficiency, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Uh, it's more than he's just on the spectrum. It, it seems to me that perhaps you know, he, he acts very childlike, and I think it, it, an interesting way parallels the, the children at the beginning and the way this 20-ish-year-old uh, adult acts very childlike because his uh, mental capacity just never formed the way a normal... I don't want to say normal persons, but say your average humans does. And as they're talking about this, and we first see uh, 
then bring him into the station. It feels a lot like Mother, because uh, spoilers for the film Mother, I guess, although a film that's now, what, 12 years old isn't exactly spoilers, but in the film Mother, a kid with a similar disability to what this kid has uh, murders a, a young woman, and the whole film kind of revolves around, um, you know, trying to find the murderer, and the murderer end up being this kid with a mental uh, dysfunctionality. Now, in this film, it's a little bit harder to tell if he did it or not, and the Korean police, much like in Mother, are extraordinarily violent and beat pretty much every suspect up. But what's so interesting about this film, and I think um, counters so many, even American films, I think, is in the American film, you kind of see them as, oh, the, the American hero who's doing you know what it takes to win and is fighting the bad guy. But it also doesn't take uh, the perspective of, oh, these cops are crooked and evil. It takes a almost third-party perspective where they are neither the bad guys or the good guys. The motives of why they're beating these people up is clear. They're not just bad people. They're not just evil, as is so often shaped in so many other films. Nor is their intentions perfectly clean or good. It's so much more complicated that and three-dimensional in that way. It seems to me that this set of characters is really concerned with doing the right thing, with finding the murderer. And they think that by beating these people, by hurting these people, by attacking these people, that they can get the truth out of them. They genuinely think that torture works. And even though there's sort of this infight between, them, or between say, the higher-ups and them, and they're really only not actually concerned about the humanity, they're more so concerned about journalists finding out about their beating up of what end up being innocent people. But they beat the, I mean, living shit out of this kid, and nothing's working because, again, this kid has mental deficiency, so he's not really grasping what's going on entirely, and so they take him up on a mountain, and they force him to start digging his own grave. And at this point, what's absolutely fascinating is our protagonist has a tape recorder, and he starts taping the kid with the mental deficiency, and he starts describing a scene that is very particular to the murder. And besides these two men, there's also another detective from Seoul. And this is, I suppose, the counterpoint to these two detectives. Unlike the other two detectives, he does not hurt anyone, he does not hit anyone, he does not punch anyone, he does not kick anyone. He is someone who is focused on facts, where our protagonist likes to look people in the eyes and thinks it's just instinctual, and it kind of highlights this at this amazing moment early on in the film, where uh, he's talking to one of the other detectives, and he says, you know, if, if you're so good at figuring out who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, there's a rapist over there and his brother, which one is which? And then it cuts to the scene uh, with our protagonist sleeping with a prostitute, which I think is a really interesting cut, and also shows, or I guess refuses to show the viewer if our detective is actually good at doing this or not. It's never really clear if the detective is good at finding people who are criminals because he ends up beating up our uh, the other protagonist, the detective from Seoul, thinking that he's a criminal. So it, it seems to me that he's not really good at it. And when he was looking people in the eye, he think, what he thinks to see is guilt. And yet time and time again, it is shown that it is not guilt. So you immediately sort of suspect him. And yet the 
you don't get the uh, approval of say that moment right there where where they right it's that moment in the film where he asks you know which one's the rapist would be to prove if he's actually good at this or not and unlike a traditional film they cut away at that moment and so you spend the entire film wondering if he is good at this or not and at this moment he looks the man with the mental deficiency in the eyes and he genuinely believes that this man's a murderer and he says things that could only be said by someone who had murdered this person and the guy from Seoul says, no, you just coached him. And he's like, no, 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 I didn't coach him. I didn't coach him. I didn't coach him. The guy from Seoul is basically fed up and walks away. And so after the scene, they have a sort of reenactment, which is this really interesting thing that I've never seen before. I don't know if it's a thing that actually happens or if it was a thing that happened back in the early 2000s or maybe it was a, a Korean thing. I really don't know. But basically they had, uh, they brought in the actual who they thought to be the murderer and dressed up one of the detectives as a woman and were about to reenact the scene in this paddy field. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of journalists taking pictures and video and photos. And they're about to reenact the scene when the guy from Seoul, who I think is honestly the only really good detective of all of the detectives, he stops them in the middle of the performance or when the performance is about to begin and says, you need to stop this. And they say, why? You go, look, the guy or the woman that was killed, she was tied up in triple knots. You had to have extreme, not only had to be very good at, well, tying people up, but you also have to have the, the, the finger dexterity, which the kid with the mental deficiency certainly did not have. And also these were expert killing someone who's been, it seems to be doing this for a long time. So it just doesn't seem like it could happen that way. And it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And they tell him this, and they're like, no, no, no we're going to do this anyways. And then the father of the boy with the mental deficiency comes and says, no, it's not him, it's not him. And there's kind of this absolutely beautiful moment, which I, I don't know if I've ever really seen in a film before, which is the conversation, the argument goes on in real time, but the footage begins to slow down, and there's this amazing scene where there's a whole giant group of them, and they're running in different directions, they're kind of moving in all these different ways and it's in slow motion and yet the argument happens in real time and it creates this really surreal effect that, that goes throughout the film where you can't really trust anyone you can't really trust anything even time itself is being diluted and changed and it's just hard to understand so they end up releasing this guy and they go on their search for who's like, who is the criminal and and they do a little bit more detective work and our detective from Seoul keeps saying, you know, the documents don't lie. The documents don't lie. And this is a very important thing that he says. Repeatedly, he says, the documents don't lie. This can't be the person. He's the only one that does real detective work. It seems like our protagonist as a detective mostly just looks people in the eye and uses intuition. And the other detective just beats people up. So uh, he's not exactly the most likable of people in the whole world. And then we get to the scene where... Uh, they're eating dinner. I'm not really sure if it's at uh, the place that uh, the father of the kid with the mental deficiency, I don't know if he owns the restaurant or if he's just only patron there. I think he owns it and they buy the kid new shoes, the protagonist does, because he, he genuinely feels bad for beating him up and it shows that while, yes, he perhaps has... Uh, warped view of the world and certainly did not treat that kid with respect he 
genuinely believes, at least in his own mind, that he's doing the right thing, that he is a good person, that he is only beating people up, that he's only hurting people because he's trying to find the answer and he's trying to make nice with this kid, which doesn't really work because, you know, the kid was beat up for like four days that even a kid with mental deficiency isn't just going to immediately be like, oh yeah, that seems fine. And so they, they go out into the forest back to one of the original scenes. And by this point, they have a couple more clues. They know that every time a murder has happened, it is raining and the specific song is playing called Sad Letter, which I think is an interesting name uh, for a song. And I'm not entirely sure how it relates uh, to the film as a whole, although I guess it does have this sort of melancholy feel to it. And so pretty much every time it rains and the song is playing, they're out on the lookout and purposely putting one of the detectives, a woman in a red skirt. So, she, you know, hopefully she'll be captured and they can catch her, catch the murderer before he's murdered. That doesn't really work out. And while they're doing one of these tests, they, uh, they come upon these two kids and they're like, hey, come into like this little shed. So they're not, you know, out in the soaked rain. And they said, first of all, what are you doing so late at night? And they're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't really matter. And then they, they said, oh, you guys are looking for the murderer. We heard that he lives be behind the outhouse. And it just seems like a silly sort of a middle school rumor that happens so often. And they kind of laugh it off at the moment. And yet later on, after they continue this search there is um it, it keeps eating at the detective from Seoul so one of these nights they're out in the rain they're going back to one of the or it might not be raining on this night but they're going back to one of the sites uh, of one of the original murders and, and trying to figure out what's going on and as they do this uh a man stumbles into the area and um how do I how do I put this nicely he um he enjoys himself with uh women's clothing like he's wearing women's clothing and he's also um he lays women like a brassiere and panties on the ground and um enjoys himself Ugh, it sounds gross even saying it that way i really don't know how to say it though and while he's or about to start doing this detectives jump on him and then there's like this really cool chase scene where they run around they're trying to catch him and it's what's fascinating about the chase scene is they're so close to him and it's it's not like one of those chase scenes where like oh everyone's doing parkour and everyone's so fit it's chase scenes between like real people it feels very realistic in that sense it feels like what a cop would actually do if he was in this scene it doesn't feel like these ridiculous parkour flips and all these things it's just like a bunch of people running around and it there's something more tense about it because it's so much easier to buy into it than say say you know running over buildings and jumping off of this and that and it's a it's an enjoyable chase scene and they don't end up catching them there and they get to this what i think is um seems like a, a quarry or something like it and he's one and there's like a hundred maybe 500 people there and they're searching for him they're searching for him and our protagonist sees that uh, he, he sees that one of the men bent over is wearing the women's underwear that they saw back in the woods and so they line all of them up this is like 10 or 12 people and he does this thing where he, he says I, he looks them all in the eye he says it's this one 
and then that guy's kicked down by the other detect the violent detective in this just absolutely ridiculous fashion although what seems to be a very painful fashion and then the scene ends and what's interesting is that the soul detective is standing a couple feet back and he sees this whole interaction takes place and he notices that the man's wearing the woman's underwear and what's strange about the scene is what seems to be suggested is that our protagonist isn't a bad detective and that he doesn't actually use his eyes to find who the criminal is. He actually finds actual evidence or what he believes to be evidence and just uses that as a sort of like, like it, the, the intuition is a facade. He doesn't actually use intuition. He just creates this facade of using intuition when he's actually doing good detective work. And the detective from Seoul notices this. And so they bring this uh, new criminal back who kind of seems like he seems pretty guilty at the time. And they do some more detective work and they beat him up for like four days. And he's like, yeah, I did it. I did it. Blah, blah. I did it. I did it. I did it. Detective from Seoul isn't buying it. There's just something that doesn't seem right about it. And so he actually follows the lead of the two kids who said to look around the outhouse, which he does. And while he doesn't find anyone at the outhouse, while he's at the outhouse, one of the teachers goes by and says, oh, you know, that rumor, it probably comes from the woman on the hill who's always crying. And he's like, well, that's interesting. So he, and what's interesting is this is not like your traditional detective work. This isn't your Sherlock Holmes or even, you know, uh, some of the films of the 30s and 40s. It's not like one clue leads from another another. It just seems like the detective from Seoul and all the detectives really are just going on a bunch of random hunches and leads that are really leading nowhere. And I think that's one of the amazing things about this script is it's not just a bunch of clues and here's the answer. It feels like real detective work because they are just kind of fumbling around and sometimes they'll get something that leads to something, but most of the time it doesn't and they're willing to show that. And so he goes up the hill and he meets this woman and we come to find out that this woman was captured by this murderer and just for some reason or another, I'm not really sure why, wasn't murdered. And so they're trying to figure out how the heck, right? Who, who the heck is this person? She's like, I closed my eyes. I didn't see anything. And, but she does give one single clue that actually helps, which is he had soft hands, soft hands. Not the most helpful clue in the world. But a detective from Seoul comes back, runs into where they are beating this poor murderer to death. And he checks his hands and they're calloused. He's like, it's not him. They're like, what do you mean? We've been talking to four days. It's not him. And at this point, the officer comes in and he is pissed off because they've now been beating multiple people who don't even end up being the murderer. So it does not look great on their end. And journalists are coming everywhere and they're like, you can't be in the inspection room anymore. You're just not allowed. And so these two people, our protagonist and his violent friend, are moping around. They're like, well, if we can't beat up, how are we going to find him? They're like, I don't know. And they talk about the strangeness of the original confession from the person with the mental dis uh, dysfunction. We know he didn't murder him, right? It, it doesn't seem like he murdered him. And yet, what he said sounded like a confession. Did you coach him? He's like, and the protagonist says, no, I didn't coach him. So why then this sounds so realistic? And then it hits our protagonist. It was a memory. The kid with the dysfunction saw the murder take place. And I realize, talking about this now, that I skipped a, a vital portion, which is they capture the actual murderer. 
and it's actually the beating of the murderer and not the beating of the second guy. So finding the murderer is surprisingly easy because apparently at the time you would send postcards if you wanted to hear a song. I guess this because it's 19 right, it's supposed to take place 1986, so they can't give calls. And so this guy would send a song or a postcard saying, "Hey, play this song." You know, when it rains, and that's when all the murder, sad letter happens to take place. And so they find the postcard, and they find the person. They're like, yeah, this is definitely a guy. And from all ends, it seems like this is definitely the person. But the problem is, again, with the proof, much like, even though the, the, soul, the detective from Seoul does believe this to be the person, they don't have any proof. And even though they're be beating him, it's not really work. Actually, they don't beat this third person. And that's what's interesting about the difference between the third person and the, the other two, which is because he had been yelled at, because they'd been basically kicked out of the inspection room before this, they're all trying to be very... They're trying to hold back. Because they know that... Well, be, first of all, being the other two people didn't make them the murderers. Also, it's not looking good. If we beat this third person up, then we'll never get him convicted. And yet, our violent detective ends up doing what he always does, which is he beats up this criminal. But they don't have anything on him. They don't have a single thing on him. They don't have a witness. They don't have any sort of proof other than the fact that he likes this song to be listened to when it rains, which is not proof at all. He has no sort of confession. And so they have to let him go. And this is when our protagonist and the violent detective realize that what the kid with the mental dysfunction was telling was a story of not only a memory but what he saw he didn't commit the murder but he saw the murder which means he is the witness he's the one that can put the actual murderer in his place he's the one that can put him in jail which is a, a strange way to go about it and i guess when talking about it i don't know why i mix up the different timestamps of it there's just something so surreal about the whole film that it almost feels like it happens simultaneously and even though it's it's told in chronological order at times it feels like did, did this happen first or did that happen first and perhaps that's why i'm telling this story to you guys in a function that is atypical of the usual fashion it's i'm not telling it as chronological as perhaps i should and so then they go back to find the kid with the uh mental dysfunction of course the kid with the mental dysfunction does uh it's pretty terrified which is really fair and so they start chasing the kid which is not helping their situation and they run after him they run after him and lo and behold the kid runs onto train tracks and they try to stop him they're like hey get off the train get off, get off the tracks get off the tracks and he's hit by a train the one witness the one person that can kill or i guess put our murderer in his place is dead and this just feels like one of the last straws like, that's it. Like, they've been working so hard to find this murderer, and now it's over. There's nothing they can do. And so they go back to, to the detective's office, and they said, look, we're going to put a 24-hour watch on this guy. He's going to do something soon, okay? The murder's going to happen again. Just keep watching him. And while they're also watching him, they find an actual piece of, uh, of DNA. And they said, we have DNA. If we can match with him, then it's good. And they're like, yeah, it's fine, but we have to send it to America. And America has to send it back to us. So this could be a while. So they're like, okay, we'll wait. We'll just keep following him. And they follow him for days and weeks. And one day, it's raining. And the detective from Seoul is following him. And his car won't start. Now, the guy has gotten on a bus. 
and his car just won't start, won't start, won't start. So he sprints back to the station, and he's like, I don't know where he is. There's only six stops between here and his home, and he's not at his home. I don't know where he is. And so the murderer basically gets away for the short amount of time, and it's raining, and the song's playing, and you see this beautiful and also terrifying montage of where our murderer captures a woman and you don't see the actual murder but you kind of see like the preparation for it and the next day the detective from Seoul comes to the crime scene and he realizes that the woman that was killed was not only a child not only a middle school girl but the very same middle school girl that stopped in the shed with him only a couple of weeks ago when it was pouring down rain. A middle school girl that he went back to talk to a couple weeks later about the outhouse. And this is sort of the final straw for him. He's broken at this point. And so he finds the murderer and just starts beating him up. I mean, he's just beating him to shreds and he's kicking him and hitting him. And this is so, even though it's, it's paralleling what the violent uh, detective and our protagonists are doing. This is the first time uh, the sole detective has ever done anything like this. He has always been very cold and collected. He's like a Sherlock Holmes. He's always about the facts and he never, ever, ever touches anyone. And so this is just strange and weird. And it's clear this is the first time that really he's been emotional in this whole film. And he's being this kid on the tracks. And our protagonist comes by and he says, the papers from America are back. They have the DNA sample. And the detective from Seoul looks at the papers and the papers say, inconclusive. The DNA between the murderer and whatever they got from the murder scene aren't the same. And our, de our Seoul detectives say, the papers lie. The documents lie, which is really fascinating because, again, as I said earlier, the whole time he says, the documents never lie, the documents never lie, the documents never lie. And at this point, the detective from Seoul is broken. The documents lie. And he points a gun at the murderer. And the protagonist says, don't do it. And he gets away. The murderer gets away. Jump forward to the year 2003 in this final scene, and our protagonist is living the family life. He's living the life he always wanted to live. And he, he he's, you know, he, he seems like he's no longer a detective. He's selling some sort of, I don't know, juicing machine or something like it. And he stops at the paddy field that the original murder took place. And he looks down into the gutter. He doesn't see anything. No one's been stuffed here or murdered here. And a little girl walks by. He says, what are you doing, mister? He says, I, I'm just remembering something. And she says, that's weird. Someone uh, the other day just did the same thing. He says, really, in what they say? He said, they're remembering something they did a long time ago, which is really intriguing because it means that not only is the murderer still out there and it never shows who this murderer is, but that the murderer could have been that person or it could have been someone else. It's never really clear. And you never really get uh, whatever happened to the detective from Seoul either. And so while I thought this was a very enjoyable film and I liked it a lot and perhaps it didn't meet certain expectations, I'm going to give this film an 8 out of 10. I've really been struggling if I should put this at I've really been struggling if I should put this film at an eight or a nine. It's still in between, but I think I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have a good reason not to put it at a nine out of ten. There's not a single moment that doesn't need to be in this film, and the film's very enjoyable. 
and it's sort of funny at moments. I think it takes a little while to get going, but once it gets going, it's a pretty enjoyable film. So maybe eight and a half out of 10, but overall very worth the watch. Thank you.